Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation could be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we delve into the key findings of the research, and my guests today are Samuel Dreyeth, a senior analyst at Economist Impact, a member of the Innovation Quotient research team, and Dr. Pantelis Kotorobis, director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technological and Economic Change. Sam, Pantelis, welcome. Before we delve into the key findings of the innovation quotient, perhaps I could ask you to introduce your work at the Oxford Martin School. In the Oxford Martin School, I lead a a research group which looks into the main trends in technology and innovation. More specifically, we're looking into the areas of artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and digital access networks. And we do so in a rather holistic view. We first try to understand the benefits that these technologies can uh, bring to the economy and society. And at the same time, we look into the regulatory aspects, how we can balance that these benefits through these technologies will not accrue to the wrong economic agents, will somehow be delivered across society uh, and across most members that participate in them. Um, what we're trying to do is sort of balance the, um, the benefits and the, and the costs uh, of these technologies Thank you, Bantelis. Part of our intent with this project is to offer research-informed insights on innovation ecosystems to ensure that new innovations are moving the world towards a more desirable future that serves the public interest. Sam, you've been closely involved in this research project from its inception. Could you take us through the key findings? Yeah, Andy, I'm happy to. So we have five main key findings from the innovation quotient, the first of which is that countries need to enable greater collaboration. We actually found that leading countries on the innovation quotient consistently outperform across metrics that have to do with multi-stakeholder collaboration. So this means between policymakers and academia and businesses, we really need to have a structural way for them to communicate and collaborate on innovation. We also found that globalization is backsliding, meaning that economies are not as integrated as they once were. So this backsliding can be seen, especially in a decrease of foreign direct investment inflows in the past couple of years. And that's not great for innovation because there needs to be open access to inputs like talent and information and financing, and they need to flow a lot more freely across borders. We also see that in the face of aging and shrinking populations across the globe, countries really need to focus on fostering a workforce that's future ready. So this means thinking about labor policies and education policies, whether you have a shrinking population or you're a country like Indonesia that's about to face a potentially huge demographic dividend and have an actually really large workforce. Additionally, innovation hubs are key to encouraging and maintaining innovative environments. So these are city clusters where academia, private sector research, and government incentives all come together to foster a positive innovation environment. And we can think of places like Silicon Valley that have historically been great innovation hubs and how they're starting to become a 
less desirable place to live. And we not only need to focus on creating new innovation hubs across the globe, but we also have to think about, well, how do we maintain these hubs that have historically been great drivers of innovation, but maybe now aren't very livable or affordable? And finally, in the end, we found that innovation comes down to the people. And oftentimes, companies or governments aren't taking into account individual consumers or employees. And they're really the ones demanding innovation. They're the ones consuming innovation. And they're the ones that innovations can impact, for better or worse. So they need to be really mindfully folded into innovation practices across the board. Thanks for that great um, overview of those five key findings. I'd certainly like to come back and, and dig into them in a bit more depth and detail as we go through. Um, Pam Tellis, could I ask you for your thoughts on these findings and the research more generally? Well, first of all, I would like to say that I found this, uh, this research particularly interesting because of the way that it approaches uh, innovation ecosystems. It starts from sort of a top-down approach like incomes and infrastructures within a country and then dives into regulatory aspects, which in this particular case are quite diverse. So this is something I've, I think I've not seen before because previous attempts to look into innovation ecosystems have focused generally on narrow questions around how quickly is it to set up a business or, you know, overlooking the long-term effects of uh, setting up um, a plan for, for progress, as I think this is the question that this research is trying to answer. And then it dives into the business specifics. What strikes me most in this approach is that aspects like labor protection legislation, climate regulation, antitrust enforcement, this kind of public R&D funding approaches are included in, in an index that generally wouldn't really care too much about these aspects. They're not really measured in, in a meaningful way in what a balance it would have. So I think this is the uniqueness of this approach. The uniqueness is that you look into the system uh, of innovation that you want to um, target for the long term uh, have a holistic view, a people-centric view that really takes into consideration that a, a successful system will not really succeed by, you know, some very quick and easy fixes, but it really needs to battle for the long term. Sam, on that point of taking a holistic and people-centric approach, why was this important and how does this come through in the findings? Yeah, so although there are plenty of attempts to define and measure innovation, oftentimes people really just think of it as technology. And through a long process of interviewing experts from around the world in many different fields, we really figured out how important it was that innovation considers its potential impacts. It considers people and social progress and isn't just about what's the next big technology on the horizon. So when we defined innovation, we wanted to make sure that it was innovation for progress. And that means that we were looking at how can the implementation of a new product or service further socioeconomic progress, whether it be through sustainability, poverty reduction, equity, empowerment. These are all really important things to consider, and they come through in the way that we structured the indicators. So we're not only looking at does a certain country allocate funding for research and development. We're looking at are they allocating that funding and then are they aware of the potential downsides that these different innovations can have? Do they have a, 
a committee collaborating with the private sector to ensure, yeah, we have these new innovations, but also they're going to be good for society and they're not going to destroy jobs or drive inequity further. It's really all about the good that innovation can do. Thank you very much. Um, Pan, tell us, maybe if I could take you back to the work that you've done with governments and regulators. As Sam was just saying there, one of the key findings that we've highlighted is this need for collaboration. But it seems that collaboration between industry and policymakers and regulators is a particular challenge. We do see the scores are relatively low for these indicators. And I'm wondering why you think that is, firstly. And secondly, what steps could be taken to foster better collaboration amongst these actors? First of all, collaboration is crucial. And I think we've seen this uh, across a range of environments. What often happens in these cases is that uh, the incentives are not aligned. So regulators often cannot be friends, for example, especially antitrust authorities with a monopolist because this this wouldn't really work well. And, you know, this is a typical Stiglarian capture case. We don't really want this kind of collaboration, but we want a, a collaboration that builds on trust and on mutual benefits for, for the country and for the businesses. What we've seen so far is that innovation and uh, the proprietors of innovation to not really seem to care about how the spillovers of those innovations will be distributed in a society. And I think regulators should care about that uh, more. Um, the question is, for me, not why collaboration is not really happening, but why are the incentives not easily aligned in these cases? And the, the answer is... Uh, who appropriates the benefits of the existing or the recent innovations. We don't see that uh, society as a whole really benefits from some innovations. In fact, we, you might see that some innovations have a, a nominal impact on the economy, but they're, you know, people who are net losers, they just don't get anything out of that. So the compositional aspects of the existing uh, innovation systems, the distributional aspects are crucial for these collaborations to materialize. So the question is is more about aligning incentives rather than uh, looking to why this is not happening. It's more of an institutional and regulatory environment, which you do try to measure and possibly there are improvements that can be uh, introduced on the line. But collaboration is crucial, but we need to find the ways to facilitate. Thank you. Well, I'd like to turn the conversation to a topical issue, artificial intelligence, and the impact that this technology will have on society. How can we foster or enable a better approach to the application of AI in order to distribute benefits more evenly across society? What we've seen so far is that automation technologies generally focus on automating tasks that do not generally improve our productivity numbers and our productivity metrics. Um, This is what the literature talks about, the so-so automation. So instead of using labor, for specific tasks, you use capital, but the productivity improvements are minimal. And this is sort of the labor capital sort of balance that you change, but in principle, you're not improving productivity. And in the long term, what we care about and in the economy and everybody need to look into is how much more we produce with the same inputs we get. So the, the challenge for AI and gen AI applications is that it actually brings us back this productivity gains, the promised productivity gains that we've been expecting for many automation technologies since the 60s and the 70s. And uh, in, in Oxford, is the productivity has been slowing down for the past 20 plus years across the Western world, in spite of the technological developments, in spite of the digital access, in spite of all the automation that we have seen. I mean, the growth rate is going down. So we're not seeing this 
this impact of those technologies. We're not measuring it, so it remains to be seen if Gen AI and these new technologies will deliver on their promises. Sam, you highlighted earlier the need to foster the workforce of the future. In the context that we've just discussed, could you go a little deeper into this particular aspect of the research? How can the innovation quotient help people, companies and society prepare for a future increasingly shaped by technologies such as AI? Yeah, so we know that AI is going to have a huge impact on the skills that people need to thrive in a future workforce. As I discussed earlier, Indonesia is an interesting case study because it is experiencing population growth, which is pretty unique in this day and age. And it's going to have a demographic dividend where it will have a large workforce. And it's important that Indonesia capitalizes on this workforce and makes sure that they're well equipped to work in a future where AI is going to be ubiquitous, potentially. And these digital skills are going to be really important. Like I said, Indonesia has a strategy that they launched back in 2018 called Making Indonesia 4.0, which is trying to boost these digital skills. So this is just one example of the type of policy that can ensure that the country is going to be future ready. And you can really get to it from the findings of the innovation quotient by looking at the demographic situation and by looking at the skill level of the workforce. You can use the IQ or the innovation quotient as a way to find new opportunities for different countries. And demographics is just one lens through which we can do that. Excellent. Thank you. I wonder if I could go on to another aspect of this while keeping the focus on artificial intelligence. We recently had the Global Summit at Bletchley Park in the UK, and there's a lot of focus on how to approach the global governance of AI. At the same time, we stress in the report that globalization, as we've experienced it to date, and on traditional measures such as trade, foreign direct investment, seems to be on the back foot. Pantelis, in this context, how can we possibly get some kind of global agreement on approaches to disruptive technologies such as AI? I agree. This is not the best time to expect that, you know, the geopolitical tensions are pretty high and we don't expect that every nation around the world, at least the, main, the, the leading ones, will manage to get around the table and agree on an agenda. But the good thing about the recent AI summit was that at least, at the very least, China was around the table and, you know, policymakers managed to at least discuss and agree to meet again, um, although there's no commitment, but it is the dialogue is still open. There's a recent report that I, I released, which is talking about the AI arms race. So there is an arms race about this technology, and it's not necessarily about the economic consequences only. It's around the other applications of AI in warfare, in cybersecurity, and in places where nations really need to make sure that they have a, a lead. Um, it is very hard. We've seen international collaborations, and to come back to your question, in very few cases they have been successful in climate. We haven't, I mean, we, there is some progress, but not as much as we would have liked. But uh, it's very hard to, to align incentives within a country. It's even more difficult to align incentives across countries and to find ways to make them agree. But I think at the minimum we can follow at least the, the Brussels effect, the risk-based framework for the EU AI Act, uh, which at least limits some of the applications of AI, which might be catastrophic for our uh, data, our privacy, and, and our lives. So these international agreements generally tend to be successful when they manage to mitigate excessive risks, you know, like the uh, nuclear treaty back in the 60s. 
Um, so it, it's this kind of agreements that we can, at the very least, hope for and possibly not a fully fleshed out uh, collaboration at the R&D level across those countries. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Pantelis. And Andy, if you don't mind if I jump in on this topic of globalization. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so climate change is clearly a global issue that we're going to struggle with no matter which country you're from. And it's something that needs a global solution as we all know. So in the innovation quotient, we see that there are countries like Nigeria who are top performers when it comes to our metrics on climate targets and commitments. But we're also pretty confident that Nigeria is not going to be able to decrease global carbon emissions uh, on its own. So this is something that really requires significant international support. And if we're not sharing ideas and technologies and data and all of these innovation inputs across borders, then it's going to be a really difficult challenge individually. Uh, and I think innovation is an amazing avenue to start tackling climate change. So really, globalization is backsliding, but we need it to reverse and we need to start fostering a more free flow of these ideas and solutions. To follow up on that, actually, another aspect of global political economy that we highlight is that now, perhaps more than ever, there's a really pressing need for us to direct innovation towards solving for some of the big issues that you just mentioned there on climate change to inequality. This theme really underpinned India's presidency of the G20. And indeed, India is looking to take something of a leadership role with the so-called Global South by promoting and developing innovations that are more relevant for emerging economies than those that come out of developed economies. Pantelis, do you see this as a positive development or one that may hinder the faster application of innovative solutions to pressing challenges? Um, I think that the, the way that you described it, essentially, it's, uh, it's, there's no silver bullet to answer all those big questions, especially around climate change. Some countries have a different approach to, to this because primarily their conditions are different, because the needs are different, and because the you know, mitigation strategies need to start from a completely different standpoint compared to the developed ones. So the reason why in the developed world, some people feel that uh, the answers that we have do not apply to the rest of the world, this is not wrong, this is actually right. And this is why India is doing a great job in this aspect. I think um, the sort of centralized decision-making in those aspects is only good as a guidance, is only good as setting up the tone uh, for everyone to really understand. So we want to have mitigation strategies, but it doesn't mean that we will have one the same solution for, for everyone. So this kind of global collaboration means that we work towards the same target, but we don't work towards the same target with the same tools. Well, thank you. Thank you both for joining me and sharing your insights. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.